0: There's no word for conservation in many indigenous languages. There's some that come close, but mean something more like taking care of or looking after. And that's probably because the very idea of conservation, the prevention of the wasteful use of a resource, would have been and continues to be foreign to many of North America's indigenous peoples who lived an entirely different codependent relationship with nature. One of consent. That is to say, it's incredible that they had this relationship at all, because we clearly do not. They had a relationship with the very same nature of which we're inextricably part of, of which we rely on for clean air, food, and water. Or it's game over. I mean, those are the starting stakes. And now, if we're not facing game over, of course, we're certainly up against the final boss, if we want to keep using a Nintendo metaphor. We live on stolen lands that were tended for, for thousands of years, by indigenous and and native peoples, and those lands have been dried out by mostly white settlers in what seems like the blink of an eye. Land that is now covered in cities and in suburbs, in industrialized agriculture, desperately and even controversially conserved as national and state parks. We live on and near waters onshore and offshore that are full of plastic and fertilizer, once bountiful, now overfished. And the receipts are in, right? It's not gone well for colonialists' stewardship of the single habitable ecosystem on this side of the galaxy, as far as anyone can tell, new voices are needed. New policies and practices are needed. And perhaps the most compelling ones come from our land's longest tenured human inhabitants. And while, yes, to be crystal clear, I'm focused on measurable actions we can take to build a vastly cleaner and better future for all people. But you know I work hard to bring you the necessary context so that we understand whatever we're talking about, whether it's AI ethics, or or land conservation, land restoration, whatever it might be, to understand how we got here, why we got here, to understand the decisions and the systems involved, all of which should only make us more effective at taking action, at making progress for more people. My guest today is Dr. Jessica Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez is an environmental scientist, a founder of the environmental agency Pina Sol. And the author of the new book, Fresh Banana Leaves, where she weaves together her family's relationship with nature, her people's relationship with nature, as part of nature. She weaves together her family's history of being displaced by war and colonialism over and over, through this lens of eco-colonialism. And she talks about how restoration is the way forward. If we'll just start with simply listening. My guest today is Dr. Jessica Hernandez. And Dr. Hernandez is an environmental scientist, a founder of the environmental agency Pina Sol, and the author of the new book that I loved, Fresh Banana Leaves.
1: Jessica, welcome. Thank you for having me here today.
0: Of course. Jessica, before we get to conservation and restoration and the book and all of those things, I have a few specific questions. We need to get out of the way, which are very important. A little while ago, you tweeted a list of things that no one ever asks you about in these conversations. And that includes, one, you used to play rugby, which is very exciting because I played rugby for a little bit. What position did you play?
1: I was the hook. So I was like at the forward position. Yes. (laughs) All right. So you're pretty quick. I think so. <laughs> I'm also very short, so I think that's you know, that fits <laughs> the, the position. <laughs>
0: that's helpful. When I started playing rugby, I played a number of different sports and just really, I think, didn't understand what I was getting myself into. I remember a friend had given me some tapes to watch ahead of time. He's like, you'll figure it out. I was like, I, I'm not figuring it out. <laughs> like, it's crazy. It's crazy. When did you play? Where did you play?
1: So when I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley, and I remember telling my parents, oh, it's like football, and they thought it was like football as in soccer, because, you know, usually Uh-oh. that's how sure. you ref- they refer to football as in soccer, but they didn't think it was like referring to American football. So when they saw the first game, they were like alarmed because <laughs> I was playing that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, to me, it felt like one of those sports you played and you are either definitely into it or like, it's too much. For lack of a better word, was the hook in you at that point?
1: No, I don't think so. And I think I was dreading the 6 a.m. workouts because, you know, you had to work out, lift weights with your team. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, being in college, I was not for waking up so early. But I think, you know, eventually (laughs) I think it was more of the sense of community, right? Because you become like in community with your teammates and the traveling, it kind of, you know, gets you closer to them. But, yeah, I was not ready for that at a young age.
0: I can totally understand that. My first couple of years in college, I was a swimmer. We would get up and be in the water at like five, which now I look back and just think like, what were you thinking, man? I mean, just terrible life choices. And you said you love the all blacks. For folks who aren't aware that New Zealand national team, they're just truly outrageously inspiring and very 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 good at what they do tell me how you discovered them
1: we will watch rugby games and you know they are like the best out of the best in my opinion and it's just something like a team that everybody aspires to become but you know we were not i don't think we ever reached their level but yeah It was just exciting to watch their games, and it's still exciting to watch their games because they're continuing to, you know, be one of the best rugby teams out there.
0: Yeah, it's something special to watch. I mean, I, I try to appreciate all sport for what it is, but what they've done and, like you said, sustained over such a period of time is amazing. Number two, you hate cake defend yourself i need to understand this better
1: yeah i just never like cake i think it's just a texture issue in we have had a lot of tres leches cakes and it's just like cake with a lot of milk i just Mm. don't like cake i tried them all and i still haven't really i think they're too sweet also
0: That's fair. So do you have a dessert of choice in any condition or are you more of a savory?
1: I'm more of a savory. If I were to have a dessert, it's usually like scones. So they're very like plain Mm -hmm. in terms of like sweetness and stuff like that. But yeah.
0: Okay. That's fair. So listen, this is the most controversial one. And I don't know if you remember this tweet and you're probably regretting it at this point. And I'm going to give you a little backstory of why I identified with what's going on here. So my brother, who is a monster, pours cereal, pours the milk, and then walks away until it's soggy, and it's the only way to eat it. You, on the other hand, would you like to explain to the people how you prepare your cereal?
1: Yes, any kind of milk, I usually warm it up and then add it to the cereal.
0: (laughs) Okay, so just so I understand, so you warm the milk first and put in the cereal. You don't, like, microwave the whole thing No,
1: not the whole thing. It's just uh, warming the milk, yes. (laughs) Fascinating, fascinating.
0: And then you eat it warm. I mean, I guess it's kind of like— An oatmeal or a porridge or something like that.
1: Yeah, and I also live in Seattle, which is like 99% of the time cold.
0: (laughs) Sure, cold and rainy. So No, I get that for sure. I get that for sure. Awesome. And the last one you said you don't drink. I kind of have given that up myself. What was behind that?
1: I never liked the the taste of any alcoholic beverage. You know, I think it tastes like apple cider. (laughs) Vinegar. <laughs> Not the apple cider, but, you know, apple cider vinegar. It tastes like, you know, sure. any healthy juice. So I'd rather just drink that. I
0: think that's fair. I think it was when I realized there was one day I woke up and I said, oh, I kind of feel hungover. And then I realized I hadn't even had any drinks the night before. I was just old and and tired. So everything made me feel that way. And My wife and I had three kids in three years, and I just realized, like, I have no bandwidth for waking up, (laughs) like, behind the eight ball at all. So I get it. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing those random things, but I remember when I saw that tweet, I saved it and thought, oh, we're going to have to get into it. I feel like we could do a whole conversation about rugby and, and warm cereal. So thank you. I appreciate it. Jessica, from what I've gathered from your work, and I watched a number of other conversations you had with other folks, including one of my newer heroes, Dr. Bronda Montgomery, who I had on the show, and I just, I couldn't have loved her book and our conversation more than I did. She's just such an inspiring person. And it seems like your work seems to always come back to relationships. So relationships among the people, with the land and waters, with everything else, uh, the animals and shrubs and trees, that we share this Ecosystem with uh, the rest of nature, and you center so much of the book in your father's narrow escape from this terrifying civil war, hiding underneath within this protective banana tree. It's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful tribute to your father. Writing a book is so hard for anyone, and yet you managed to weave all these incredible things together and make it so invocative and impactful. And you didn't pull any punches. How did you come to this idea of weaving your father's story throughout? what you wanted to say about your work.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, just becoming an adult and seeing how my father is becoming an elder, right. It, it always kind of was an interest of me to kind of record his story somehow. And I think that, um, being able to write a book about environmental sciences, conservation, especially from the lens of an indigenous woman, right? Because oftentimes, you know, the book doesn't necessarily talk about environmental sciences or conservation the way that we're taught in school. I decided to, you know, weave his story, especially given that a lot of the teachings that I have integrated in my field of study have come from him, knowing that, you know, we're displaced. So my father was my first teacher of nature and also seeing how he manifested his relationship at a young age as a little girl with our environment and also reclaiming that relationship, right, because we were in a foreign landscape, in a foreign environment. I owe it to him why I, you know, decided to pursue the environmental field, and I think that that was a way of honoring his teachings as, you know, he's an elder.
0: That's beautiful. Getting any sort of degree, much less sort of a Ph.D., especially in a system that, as you so eloquently Explained is built on teaching and standards and ways of doing both of those the philosophies and the methodologies that are not very inviting to the more indigenous ways that you were raised on through your father and everything else. At what point did you decide, like, a PhD is not enough? I want to write a book. Like, this is how I want to tell more of our story. So I guess even before you got to the part of your father, maybe that was the inspiration.
1: Yeah, I think I'm writing a PhD kind of, you know, in the book, I talk about like the experiences that I face, right? The invalidation of indigenous ways Mm -hmm. of knowing, the invalidation of lived experiences. And I think that. I had a great mentor who, um, Dr. Christina Bogt, who was my advisor for my PhD. And she had written many books, especially in the environmental sciences, talking about conservation. Her main focus is forestry, ecology. So, you know, she had allowed me to write several chapters for some of her books. And I think that just seeing how writing a book is different from peer reviewing or publishing in that realm, it just kind of, you know, intrigued me. As you know, writing peer review articles, we have to be more, you know, write an abstract then the methods, then the data. You cannot really integrate yourself or, you know, your mm-hmm. stories. And I think that, you know, being able to write a book, it kind of gave me that the different lens of, oh, you can actually talk about yourself when you're writing a chapter. So imagine what you can talk about when you write an entire book for yourself.
0: Sure. So you understand, and any new listeners, I always try to come at these conversations in any of the work we do. It's folks find our community because they're often looking around, whether it's climate or COVID or something else, and saying, what can I do? And the most effective answer I've found is, well, Jessica, what can you do? You know, what is the cross-section of your lived experiences and your skills and your passions, whether it's something you were interested in, because of your family or seventh grade science or you're an artist or whatever it might be, there's room for it, certainly. And we've certainly got a number of writers and creators and things like that of every flavor. So I wonder if you can talk just for a moment about, I guess, what that process was when you were like, oh, a book seems more conducive to the way I want to tell my story and why I come to restoration from this lens and what the actual process of writing a manuscript, finding a publisher, whether it was as not conducive to a creative experience as, as maybe your PhD experience was. It's a little more technical and logistical, but I think people are interested in that to basically go like, how do I write a book? Why would anyone want to read a book that I've written? Because I think that matters the more we can share that with folks.
1: I think that, you know, it's important to kind of tell everyone that everyone has a story, right? Everyone has an important mm-hmm. story that they can share. And I think that when we look at the literature world, the stories that are often uplifted in climate change are those of experts, right? You need a PhD, you need like 10 years of climate science research. There are a certain number of folks who are dominating that discourse, right? It's the same folks that you see in the when you turn on the news station talking about climate science. And I think that knowing that climate change is still happening and there's still little that is being done by our governments, like everyone has a story that's important to share. And when I wrote the manuscript, I sent it to several presses, and I think that I kind of shied away from the university presses because they're more strict on how you write, and I wanted to work with an editor who was going to let me write my story, right? Who wasn't going to tell me, oh, you need to write it in a way for more academics to only understand, or you need to include more terminology, and I think that that's why I decided to go under a smaller press house in Penguin Random House, because they Also had experience writing Indigenous stories, Indigenous books, written books. And I think Mm. that that kind of gave me, welcomed me into their environment because, you know, they didn't determine how an Indigenous person should write. And I had read several of the Indigenous books that came from that press and their books that, you know, have had a home in my bookshelf. So I think that that kind of inspired me to go with them as opposed to, you know, University Press where... We write for the academic audience and not necessarily for the community at times.
0: Sure. Oh, that's wonderful. You were able to find somewhere that was so understanding and accommodating of of your story and was, you know, I imagine at least relative to, like you were saying, University or Press or one of these bigger, more mainstream houses, relatively hands-off. You submit the manuscript. You find this smaller house within Penguin Random House. What was the next step in your journey from there.
1: I received the contract right before, we, you know, we went into lockdown for the pandemic. So, I had signed the contract and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to write, I'm going to probably find a cafe to go every now and then, you know, <laughs> in between work or after work." The dream, especially right? Yeah, to read and write. And then, you know, we went into extreme lockdown because the United States was like, oh, we're actually in a pandemic. You know, everything that we were saying was false. Mm. This is actually very highly contagious and it's leading us to many hospitalizations and deaths. So I literally started writing the book when we were in lockdown so I think that my entire draft of like oh this is how I'm gonna be writing the book kind of shifted completely but I think it also allowed me to sit down and actually talk to the people whose stories are incorporated to kind of be in community with them it kind of gave me a different perspective because I was not meaning to include so many stories. But I think that, you know, being in the pandemic, understanding how we were going to thrive, even as a community that needed each other, that needed to talk to each other, it kind of gave me a different perspective. And I was like, wait a minute, instead of just incorporating my father's story, I should incorporate other people who I'm in community with as well, their stories and because they're important. And they're also a way of, you know, how I wanted to write this book.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, it's just and I imagine, you know, a lot of folks feel this way if, if they have been lucky enough to be able to do their work in, in a safe, relatively safe environment the past couple of years. I, I imagine there's a lot of people that at least somewhat similarly have approached it, especially from a creative point of view, just realizing like they're doing work that they've always wanted to do or maybe dreamed of doing, maybe not, not in a cafe, as we sort of paint the picture. But at the same time, doing it through just an entirely different lens. You know, I remember back growing up when someone, when a teacher would say write a paper about anything, even if it was third grade or high school or college, I would always spin and spin and thinking like, what do I write? What do I do? This, this, and this. But I felt like I was more effective when a teacher would say, write me 500 words or 3,000 words about the last week of summer vacation. And Then I think, oh, constraints. Like, that's super helpful. Like, I know what to do, and that can help paint the picture for me. You even talk about COVID. It's so interesting reading it for a number of reasons, obviously, but because it incorporates so much of history and so much of your history and your family and your people's history, even as, like you said, you've been moved from place to place and now you're in Seattle, but at the same time, it feels so much of the moment, both in the, if we don't do this now, you know, we're making even more mistakes. And also it's very clear, whether it's COVID or whatever it might be, that we have to elevate voices who have a relationship with the planet, who who know how to care for it. And proved that over thousands of years where, you know, this moment we're in and you've got this IPCC report this week and it doesn't take much to look around and Look at what happened with the Northwest last year. I mean, that was incredibly devastating to see, you know, there has never been a more important moment to start making huge change. So you pull no punches, as it were, in your book about white eco-colonialism and genocide, among others. How important was it to you in writing the book and also now going forward in your work, Pina Sol and otherwise, that we not only find a far more practically holistic way of restoration and and care and relationship building with the earth but to tell the story of how we got to this place how much does that matter to your work so that I guess we can understand the mistakes that have been made again by folks who look like me along the way
1: yeah one of the reasons why I incorporate that you know this the history of settler colonialism is that oftentimes as scientists when we're practicing our science, we kind of exclude ourselves from settler colonialism. Like when we talk about marine sciences, do we really know the history behind what founded that field study, right? Do we know the indigenous contributions to that field, especially from the indigenous peoples of the Pacific Islands who were navigating our oceans? Sure. And I think that as a result of that, writing the histories, especially a history that's still embedded in our society, such as settler colonialism, it allows us to reflect a lot on the things that we can actually do moving forward especially knowing that for instance this year the ipcc report mentioned that oh yeah we should actually listen to indigenous knowledge and include indigenous knowledge despite the united nations cop conference excluding indigenous peoples from their platforms from you know actually being invited we had every representative of indigenous communities who were still trying to fight against the pandemic right because a lot of uh, indigenous communities while the United States Native American tribes have led a a great effort for COVID a lot of indigenous communities of the global south don't really have access to vaccines and they're still trying to grapple with that and I think that you know it's kind of ironic that you have the COP conference and then you have the IPCC report kind of you know notifying that, oh, we should actually listen to indigenous peoples and integrate their knowledge because it's a little bit ironic, right? Because when you do have the platform to actually uplift those indigenous knowledge systems, you actually don't do that. But, you know, and it's always done in writing, right? And I hope that that kind of translates to actions. And I think that as an indigenous woman, I have experienced a lot of lip service, right, as we call it, and there has never sure. been any action actually enacted to do what they're saying they're gonna do. So I think that that also parallels the realities that many of us still live today, right, as Indigenous peoples in the environmental discourse and, you know, feel.
0: I love that. And I I was curious in knowing our conversation was coming up and and seeing, like you said, that lip service in the IPCC report, but at the same time, no real cooperation within COP itself, which, you know, a complicated beast unto itself. And and it really is remarkable because it's not difficult to look around practically anywhere now and understand that, The purposeful omission, the erasure, the negligence of not including indigenous voices throughout, of continuing to marginalize them at best, is only holding the entire endeavor back, right? We just continue to dig the hole deeper. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Pina Soul, what the purpose is there, what you're working on, and what you hope to accomplish with it in the sense of, again, these greater scopes of Lip service, having to carve out space where you can.
1: Piñazo is a small social purpose corporation that I founded right when I completed my doctoral degree. And that was, you know, because we experienced a pandemic and a lot of my relatives are artisans, right? So they embroider, they bead, mm-hmm. they also do um, filigrana, which is this gold kind of jewelry that they the ancient tradition that has stayed in Oaxaca so I wanted to support them in you know in the small ways that I could especially given that you know in the pandemic there were tourism was going to shut down especially and they relied a lot on tourism so I think that that was the sole purpose of it and then I decided that you know I can actually integrate some of the consultation services so that we can start having these conversations with organizations who can actually have the power to enact change who have the power to actually, you know, start reflecting and being like, oh, maybe we should include indigenous peoples, but how do we do that? And I think that, you know, mm-hmm. just growing small social purpose corporation and the social purpose corporation is one of the business models that Washington state has. I think Hawaii has that as well. And there's one other state that has that model where you can make some profit, but it's for a social purpose. So it's kind of like a business kind of integrated with like a non-profit, but not necessarily in the sense of a non-profit that cannot make any profit. So I think that, you know, sure. I decided to go with that model to see how I can support my relatives and also kind of give consultation services whenever we have the capacity. And through that funding that we do get from both of those things, we're able to give small micro grants for Black and Indigenous-led conservation efforts. And you don't necessarily have to be a non-profit, right? Because not all of our community mm-hmm. members have the resources to establish a nonprofit so we give out micro grants to individuals who do that work.
0: That's really cool. I love that you've you've wouldn't say pivoted it but evolved it to becoming something that's so much more directly applicable and practical in doing in doing the work. You know, it seems like such a beautiful extension of like you said where you come from and 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 your people and the elders and what they make with their hands and what you're trying to make th- through your own work and and working with those structures. So I'm curious, you know, on the sense of how that is going, you know, is it more incoming calls or outgoing calls? Because we are desperate for new ways to heal and care for this earth we are so lucky to have, right? As far as we can tell, one habitable place, the power structures are still, and this is how they are just incentivized, unwilling to do what's needed to take decisive action, to stop doing more damage to start with. And at the same time, they're reluctant to even discuss broader measures, more impactful things like giving stolen lands back to indigenous people, whether it's the park or parks or elsewhere, no matter how badly we've scarred them. But I'm curious through this evolution of Pina Sol and coming off your book and your degree, where you might be finding some successes working with some of these groups, if you're finding places where you can be most effective, that are most receptive, and how that can be transferred to even more success down the line.
1: It's interesting, right? Because through Pina, so when we do the call for, you know, for funding projects, we do get a lot of applications. So I think that it kind of solidifies the fact that Black and Indigenous communities are doing a lot of the, the projects to support their communities, but yet there's no funding going towards Black and Indigenous communities. And those are the two communities that we focus on, but that doesn't say that, you know, other communities of color are not doing the same kind of work. And I think that it's hard, right? When we are deciding who to fund or which projects to fund because, you know, there are limited funding that we have. And also there's like a huge influx of like, you know, people submitting applications. So I think it, it shows that organizations should be doing more, especially organizations that have the capital to fund these black and indigenous or community led initiatives that are trying to address the healing of our landscapes. And I think another thing is that knowing Everybody has a role to play in the healing of our landscapes. It's whether, you know, we have to step back, whether we have to lift other voices, whether we have to give back the land. We all have a role. And sometimes it's finding our position in that role and seeing whether we're willing to do that and do the actions that our roles tell us, you know, demand us to do as people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy this place that structurally that, you know, how how Pinasol is set up as, like you said, it's not a nonprofit, it's, it's not a profit, it's a special sort of newer social thing, but also sort of being this conduit almost between, like you said, uh, funding and then finding a way to apply that to people, artisans who can do things, and it doesn't require much to... Enhance their efforts, like you said. Even a even a micro grant can go so far. I think of we had a wonderful conversation with a couple of the folks who work with this large anti poverty organization called Give Directly, and they work a lot with just giving people cash because they've done so many studies and said, you know, one of the most effective things we can do is let people have autonomy over their decisions because on any given day, someone who's living underneath the global extreme poverty line, which I think is like a dollar and 90 cents, you know, one of the most effective things we can do is let them decide because on any given day they could need food or housing or water or transportation or something like that. And if you just go and build wells or you just go and give food or whatever it might be, that's not letting them dictate how they want to live and and need to live and address their needs in a in a way that they have autonomy over it that's going to help them elevate themselves and their families and their businesses, whatever it might be. That's why I was so interested to hear about how you're doing sort of this, this micro-loan version with Piña?
1: Yeah, so with those micro-grants, we have a board. I usually ask for volunteers to review the application so that, you know, there's no biased decisions made. And I think that we are able to give micro-grants ranging from like $100 up to $1,000, depending on what the community asks and also what kind of funding we have during that year. And I think that being able to incorporate my family's way of living, especially with the artesanías, it allows us to, you know, generate some funding so that we don't rely necessarily on donations or sponsors because, you know, oftentimes, Mm -hmm. especially in the pandemic, we can be a little bit over consumed with, With donations, right? Because all of our inequalities kind of were amplified during the pandemic. And I think that, you know, we can have that donation fatigue at times, especially when we want to give. But, you know, a lot of us have lost our jobs or a source of income, right? That's something that we shouldn't ignore as well. And I think that through that, you know, we're able to sell goods, give most of the profit back to the artisans themselves, and then get some of that donations that they decide to give for these small microgrants. And right now it's a small cycle, but hopefully with more manpower, we can make it a little bit more of a bigger organization. But I think that that would probably take years. <laughs>
0: but, you know, that's the time we have and in the in the work we have to do. You know, I was talking with a, a friend who's a excellent climate change reporter and and we're about the same age. And we were sort of realizing that if this idea that we need to decarbonize everything by 2050, you know, it's very easy to look at where we are in our lives and realize like, oh, that's the extent of our work life, basically. And like, it kind of makes you take a step back and go, I think this is how I'm going to spend my time and, and use it in the most effective way that I can by, you know, for me, that's focusing on action and focusing on on being as inclusive and, in, and cooperative as I can with folks like yourselves and other ones who clearly have very different lived and work experiences make clearly infinitely smarter and more capable than I am, and finding ways to amplify that as much as possible. How For Pina, are, are most of the microgrants, are they more local or regional to your area in the Northwest, or is it kind of all over the place? How do you prefer to do that as you're trying to, like you said, sort of scale this operation up?
1: The micro-grants that we have given out and also the applications, they are more local-based. So we are trying to work with a nonprofit and Sustainable Seattle to see how we can get more funding for the local initiatives. But, uh, you know, our hopes and, you know, the board and everybody who's behind Piñazo is to make it more national. And I think it has to do with, like, Piñazo having been established in the state of Washington and more people being familiar with the small organization here than at the national mm-hmm. level. So hopefully it will go national especially knowing that, you know, there are so many communities, you know, across the country who are doing the same initiatives to support their communities as well.
0: You're not wrong. It's not difficult to look up even pre-COVID and feel that we're all being pulled in a million <laughs> directions. Like you said, donation fatigue. It's I remember doing when my young cousin who survived and did well got a blood cancer when she was very early 20s. And I remember using Facebook going on and saying, hey, friends, I'm raising money to try to give, you know, to the folks who are doing research for her specific type of blood cancers. And that was such a novel sort of thing at the time to to use that as an instrument to harness the collective to try to focus as opposed to like just asking one on one on one. And now, flash forward, again, even pre-pandemic, there's so many people and groups and marginalized people or people who uh, have some sort of pre-existing condition or some sort of tragedy and we're just all being pulled in so many different directions at every time that it's really hard to focus as someone either if you're trying to give it or someone like yourself who's trying to give it but do it in this focused way to identify how do I most successfully bring in enough funding to keep this going if not to to grow it but it seems like identifying Such a specific use case is a good way of going about that so that people can sort of identify in their mind, oh, this organization does this specifically, and that's something that I care about and I'm interested in and I want to support and elevate. Do you find that that that's helpful that you sort of have a, a calling card? almost to say like, this is what we do.
1: Yeah, that's, that's you know, something that we do. And also I think one of the things that we do is that we also amplify mutual aids and mutual aids is like, you know, just a indigenous way of life where, you know, we have a little bit more, we give it to the family who's in need. And I think that amplifying mutual aid, especially back, you know, the projects that are happening back in, in our ancestral lands in the global mm-hmm. South, especially in Latin America, it has allowed us to generate enough Donations to actually help the communities complete those projects. So I remember working with the Mistec community with this indigenous woman-led artisanal cooperative that is also that also played a role in the Fresh Banana Leaves book. And during the hurricane season, they lost their milpas, right, their communal harvest. So they were facing food insecurity. And as a result of that, we decided to, you know, create a mutual aid so that we can support the communities, especially the people who were most impacted, which was single mothers and elders, because they didn't have any other economic or income source. So we were able to fundraise enough to provide them with with food for an entire year, and that was through a mutual aid effort and knowing that being in the united states the u.s dollar carries a heavy weight globally especially in the global economy so a dollar sometimes is up to 21 mexican pesos which is a lot of money in mexico and as a result of that you know we were able to raise enough for the whole year of food for over 24 families and I think that you know it shows the power that even if we donate a dollar especially for communities of the global south, it can actually be expanded much more than unfortunately in the United States.
0: Sure. I feel like that's one of the, the main things I really understood as I try to go into these conversations that I endeavor to and, and often fail, but do my best to learn as much as I can about the person and, and the subject and, and the greater landscape around it. And, and similarly, when I was really trying to understand where we've come on global Poverty and, and where we are, and why the measuring lines are where they are and what the systems are behind, why certain places are still dealing with it, or getting worse. It's one thing to say there's a poverty line or extreme poverty, but I, like you were saying, it's so vastly different in each place, and also it is a measure of what you can attain for these goods, right? Clean air, clean water, clean and healthy food, to start with, at the least, and, and some shelter. It's really remarkable how much, and we have enormous structural. Systemic problems here, and and most of them are undergirded by racism. But it is incredible, like you were saying, how far a dollar can go in some places, especially places like you said when those hurricanes came. I mean, millions of people just devastated, and so many of them are to sort of categorize it in a lazy way, subsistence farmers, which is they're growing the food they eat. They're they're not going out and, and buying a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and your story of how the milk bus was lost was just crushing. And I I really appreciated the nuance you took to, to really explain what that whole process was like, how it was supposed to work. And then so I could better understood how it failed and what that meant when it didn't and all of the different pieces of the ecosystem that were related to it. But it really is incredible how much just a small amount of money can have to help folks recover or just to elevate themselves and feel a sense of security.
1: Oftentimes, you know, that that goes back to what it means to be a displaced Indigenous person, because, you know, we still hold those responsibilities with our communities back in our ancestral lands. And I think that that's something that my parents have taught me that, you know, despite it all, We are still responsible for helping our communities, especially in times of need, to our capacities. And I think that having the privilege, right, to have a Ph.D., to even have a social media platform, because Internet is something that it's a privilege back in our homelands, right, because we don't our communities don't have access to the Internet. I'm able to elevate those mutual aids and get donations. And I think that, you know, it takes a community and a village to do that kind of work. And it also goes back to the responsibilities, right, that we have with the land, with the people, and in my case, also with my communities back in my ancestral lands as well.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that, again, just on top of this idea, this necessary but so lacking fabric of relationships, again, not just with each other. Should I wear a mask? Should I not? Who does it matter? Am I protecting myself? Am I protecting other people? But also, again, applicable to the land and the water and the animals and the plants, whether they're edible or not. And you talked a little bit about consent. And there's this notion willing consent is this thing that Americans are dealing with on such a far-reaching and intimate scale these days, right? So women are increasingly standing up to men who take advantage of them, right? But they still have to fight and often, as we've seen, fail to keep sexual aggressors off of the Supreme Court, right? You've got the largest companies of all time started here, and now in this sudden race over the past 10 years, they are able to collect and profit off of our data, our actual locations, and often either without our consent, only discovered later, or if they have it, it's buried underneath pages of legalese that few people are ever going to read, much less actually understand without a degree, right? Equivalent to yours, but in an entirely different profession. Again, there's this beautiful history of living in a relationship with the nature around us that we should ask consent and similarly show gratitude for what we take because we are taking it, right? And that we should only take what we need. And, and I thought about it, I was watching a presentation that Robin Wall Kimmerer gave pretty recently. I believe she said this in a few other places, but it says, Diev, never take the first plant you find as it might be the last. And you want that first one to speak well of you to the others of her kind. That seems so simple and yet at the same time so revolutionary to so many folks, again, like me who were raised in the society we're in and and built these power structures. But in addition to giving land back to restoration and enabling more indigenous positions in these power structures of care. What are some policies of holistic restoration and care that you feel like could be successful in more places? I guess, where have you actually started to see some success some progress and how can we transfer that to more places as we work against the clock that we built ourselves?
1: So I think living in the state of Washington, right, the example that comes to mind is like when the tribes fought to get their treaty rights recognized, where they have the right for 50% of the custom salmon species that come through this region. And I think that that took them to take their fight to the legal court system and that's known as the bold decision where judge bold decided that you know actually yes we should actually enact the treaty rights and give tribes the right to their salmon and as a result of that tribes here the federal recognized tribes i think it's 29 have a right to steward conservation efforts or protection um, initiatives for the salmon. And I think that that shows an example of how giving back the land or giving ownership of that stewarding for our natural resources can actually elevate conservation efforts and also integrate Indigenous knowledge. And I can also think of the presidential memorandum, right, that President Biden passed, where he was like, oh, we should actually also incorporate indigenous knowledge, or as he called it, traditional ecological knowledge when talking about um, environmental efforts. But that's still a memorandum, right? It's not actually a law. So hopefully that presidency decides to enact it into law so that we can see that at the national scale as well.
0: Are there other places around the world, perhaps in the global south? And I know you said, Mexico is very far from it so are there are there places that are actually seeing more progress on these things that are more accommodating and progressive and and enabling more indigenous power to revert to a system that actually works of relationships and care
1: Yeah I can think of um the recent situation that happened in Ecuador where I think 3200 barrels of oil were actually emitted in the Amazon rainforest. But again, it takes like a tragic event, environmental disasters to happen in order for government structures to listen to the indigenous communities. So as a result of that, the government decided like, oh yeah, tribes should give a consent whether there can be oil or extractive energy resources or projects happening in their indigenous lands. And without consent, those projects cannot actually move forward in building or constructing their pipelines and I think that That's another example But again These are examples Where an extreme Environmental disaster happens And then that's when The government is actually like Oh okay The tribes are advocating For their rights At the federal level Or at judicial level So let's actually Listen to them mm-hmm. But it's unfortunate Right That these situations Have to happen Where most of our Environment are destroyed Especially you know With oil It's obviously going to Have a negative impact It's going to take a while mm-hmm. For the landscapes To actually restore And as a result of that, right? It takes that for governments to actually listen to indigenous people.
0: Yeah, disaster shouldn't be the prerequisite for this sort of action, for this sort of movement to uh, enable folks who clearly have a record and a, a way of life and a philosophy and a methodology, all of those things of healing, of taking care of one another and taking care of what's around us. I don't want to keep you too long. So we, again, we try to work towards these action steps that folks can take. So besides checking out Soul and any other specific recommendations you might have for again our community to get involved, either themselves or on their local front, uh, because again, it's the United States, you live on stolen land. There there are ways to to enact change wherever you might be, to search out any missions that might be ongoing that they could support in any way, even if that's not appropriate to get directly involved, whatever the case. But also I was curious, you mentioned that you're publishing at Penguin Random House, have published some indigenous books that you enjoyed before. And if you want to share any of those, you can also send them to me later and we can throw them in the show notes, whatever is easier. So I'll just leave it to you. How do you feel like is the best way to folks to get educated and get on board and contribute?
1: I think one of the ways is also to learn whose indigenous lands you're currently occupying, um, you know, or settled on. And I think that's through Native land that Canada. And I think that that's a great way to kind of immerse yourself into learning more about the indigenous histories. Like the map doesn't necessarily show you the history, but then you can do a Google search of the indigenous communities whose lands you're currently on and seeing what kind of initiatives they're actually leading because, you know, we can focus a lot of our efforts in our own backyard. Another way is also to, you know, pick up indigenous scholarship. And I think some of the books that publishing company has that I can think of is I think Medicine is sacred is one of them, and I think sacred instructions is another one. But I can send you a link as well because I—
0: Send me whatever you want, and we'll we'll put it in the show. I don't mean to put you on the spot with it. If you asked me what are the five books I read most recently, I couldn't remember a single one, even though I love them all. So I totally get it. I'm not going to make you do that. Thank you. I'm I'm excited for myself, selfishly, and also we'll get to this in a sec with one other question. But we've used the website Bookshop. I'm not sure if you're familiar with they support independent bookstores. We've got a whole list of our guest book recommendations on there. So we'll put those on there. Well, if they're available there. If not, we'll link to it in a more specific way. So a few last questions we ask everybody and then then we'll get you out of here. Jessica, and again, thank you so much for your time and, and your scholarship. When was the first time in your life when you realized You had the power of change or the power to do something that was— really practically meaningful, again, whether that's yourself or in your community or as part of a group of friends, whatever it might have been.
1: I guess for me, it's interesting because my maternal nation, the nation that my mom comes from, is actually matriarchal. So instead of, you know, patriarchy, the women are the uh-huh. ones who are leading our nations. You know, our nations consist of different pueblos, but at least in the pueblo for my mom, it's still something that's really recognized because we will visit back our homes, how women had this power to speak speak up right like how my grandmother will be telling everybody what to do even my grandfather and how she let basically our entire family. So I think that seeing her being that kind of powerful indigenous woman kind of allowed me to realize like, oh, I also have the power right because I was a shy student growing up, especially in my K through12 educational system. and I think that seeing that kind of manifest in that role, the reverse of roles because you know in the United States we're accustomed to patriarchy, it kind of allowed me to be of like, course. oh, actually a woman can also speak up and a, a woman can also tell people what to do and also be respected for it as well.
0: I love that. That's really cool. Who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months?
1: Dr. Baranda Montgomery and also Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein, because they're both black scholars who have actually written Mm -hmm. books also, and they have kind of taken me under their wing and also kinda supported me, right, as a young writer and also as somebody who just published their first book on how to actually do these kind of things. So I will have to give them both props.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, I couldn't have enjoyed my conversation and getting to know Dr. Bronda Montgomery enough. On top of her own scholarship and her work, her entire philosophy and attitude towards mentorship is just so beautiful and something to learn from. I'm a big fan of Dr. Prescott Weinstein. I would I would love to have her on the show at some point. I got to keep earning it here. Jessica, when things are chaos and difficult, as they've been for a while now, what is your self-care? How do you take care of yourself? Because that is actually... Just as important as sort of what can people do? People are trying to do the right thing and help, but they're also like, I am completely burnt out. Things are a little gnarly. And I think they appreciate hearing from folks like yourself who are so impressive and inspirational say sometimes i just gotta go for a walk or eat ice cream or whatever it might be or hot cereal
1: so for me this is more of like you know in academia right talking about academia like we tend to bring our works home and it's kind of ironic right because a lot of us have been working from home but i think just setting boundaries right. where like you know i'm like okay so i'm gonna work until four and that's it like whether i'm done or you know still have to work and then i start watching tv shows or i start reading and i think being able to do that during the pandemic and setting those really harsh boundaries of like if i get an email after 4 p.m i'm not going to respond to it because i can wait until tomorrow and also practicing self-care so it's reading a book watching television because we have a lot of great tv shows during the pandemic that have come out so catching up on those shows and also going for a walk because i think that oftentimes you know we focus so much on sitting and i just like to go for a walk my allergies during the season just kind of Amplify because I guess the trees and the pollen and the rain, right, is kind of spreading a lot of the, the soil up in the air. But yeah, I'd like to go for a walk, especially wear a mask that can probably prevent my allergies from, you know, just flushing out.
0: <laughs> I, I hear that. What are you watching? I'd love to know. What's like your, oh my God, thank, I turned it all, I turned off the work, I'm, I'm done. Like, I couldn't be more excited to just watch.
1: So, I'm into the show Euphoria, which is, I think, that it's supposed to be more for younger people, but I actually like it.
0: (laughs) I feel like I'm not allowed to watch it, I'm so old.
1: Because, I mean, it shows you a different light. I just really like the whole premises of the storyline. Like, I think it's a mature story, it's not, you know, for younger (laughs) folks. And also, I'm re watching Devious Mates, which was, I think, a show that came out a couple years ago, but it's very funny to me for some reason.
0: Awesome. You got to have something. It makes a big difference to have something like that to look forward to. I love reading, but sometimes I just got to turn it all off and do that. Last one. What is a book you've read this year that has opened your mind to a topic you hadn't considered before or has actually changed your thinking in some way? And again, we'll throw that all up on bookshop.
1: So I think it would be Dr. Emil Kemes' book, which is on Mayan literature, just because, you know, being so stuck in the sciences, I haven't really looked at, oh, you know, there's actually a lot of Mayan literature that's important and it has kind of transformed as we have gone, you know, as we have gone from like, oh, this is an ancient civilization that no longer exists to actually scholars and writers actually writing poems in our different Mayan languages. So I think that that was a book that I was like, oh, this is awesome, actually awesome because, you know, it's talking about literature and poems, you know, talking about more writing, but from the Mayan perspective.
0: Sure. I love that. Well, yeah, if you can send me the name of that, I would love to look it up and we'll I'll try to add it to the list as well. Last one, where can our listeners follow you online and Pina soul And we'll obviously put the link to the book out there as well. Twitter,
1: because <laughs> that's just like I sometimes I'm like, oh, I forget that I'm actually tweeting things to people. So that would be like the best way to get to meet me online.
0: Awesome, we'll put all that on there so everybody can can follow your incredible work and and uh, link to the book, which uh, I would love if everybody had a read. Dr. Hernandez, thank you so much for your time, your scholarship, for your your writing and and sharing your history with us and your your mission to enable more folks going forward to live with the land, with the water, with the nature around us in a much more restorative way, because there is clearly no time like the present to to finally start doing that. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah. And thank you for sharing your space with me. And I hope that this conversation might help someone out there.
0: Absolutely. That's all we can try to do. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in.